0: Hello, this is Dr. Pen Shen Qian, the editor-in-chief of Heart Rhythm. Thank you for listening to this podcast summarizing the February 2020 issue of the journal. The featured article this month is an association between right ventricular dysfunction and sudden cardiac death by Pandat et al. A comprehensive interview with the senior author conducted by our online editor, Dr. Daniel Mooring, can be found at the www.heartrhythmjournal.com website. The data came from a prospective ongoing community-based study of sudden cardiac death in in the Portland, Oregon metro area. The authors found that right ventricular dysfunction was associated with a significantly increased risk of sudden cardiac death independent of left ventricular ejection fraction and when combined with left ventricular ejection fraction, had additive effects on sudden cardiac death risk. These findings have potential implications for sudden cardiac death risk stratification and warrant further prospective evaluation in larger populations. The next article is titled, Risk of thromboembolic events after percutaneous left atrial appendage ligation in patients with atrial fibrillation, written by Monhati et al. The authors studied consecutive patients undergoing left atrial appendage ligation with the LARIA device at multiple centers, with at least one year follow-up. They found that complete occlusion of the left atrial appendage with the LARIA device was associated with a low rate of thromboembolic events, at the long-term follow-up. However, residual leaks were common after lariat closure, and the stroke rate was significantly higher in patients with incomplete occlusion, even with very small leaks. Therefore, it is important to identify the patients with leaks to prevent thromboembolism. Next up is an article titled "Long-Term Outcomes After Low-Power, Slower Movement Versus High-Power, Faster Movement Irrigated Tip Caster Ablation for Atrial Fibrillation" by Bunch et al. The authors found that the long-term freedom from AF rates were not significantly different between the two approaches: a high-power, short-duration ablation strategy compared to a low-power, long-duration approach also associated with an increased risk of atrial flutter and the need for repeat ablation, but lowered procedure times. These findings suggest that more research needs to be done to improve the high-power, short-duration approach to ablation. Janus et al. wrote the following article titled High-Sensitivity Troponin and the risk of atrial fibrillation in chronic kidney disease. The authors studied about 4,000 patients in a prospective cohort of chronic kidney disease patients. They discovered that high sensitivity troponin levels are associated with increased risk of atrial fibrillation in patients with mild to moderate chronic kidney disease. Previous studies showed that high-sensitivity troponin levels also are associated with other cardiovascular events, such as heart failure, stroke, peripheral artery disease, and so on. However, the mechanisms of this association remain unclear. The next article titled, "Incidence of uh, Sleep Apnea, and the association with atrial fibrillation in an unselected pacemaker population was written by Marty Almer et al. Sleep apnea monitoring is a pacemaker feature that measures the respiratory disturbance index, which is the sum of abnormal respiratory events divided by sleep duration. This investigation shows that sleep apnea screening over 12 months identified severe sleep, uh, sleep apnea in almost one-third of unselected pacemaker patients. Severe sleep apnea was associated with a higher instance of significant atrial fibrillation. These findings indicate that pacemakers equipped with sleep apnea monitoring algorithms may help identify patients with sleep apnea which can then lead to appropriate therapy. Next up is a paper by Campolat et al. titled Association of Fragmented QRS with Left Atrial Scarring in Patients with Persistent Atrial Fibrillation Undergoing Radio Frequency Castor Ablation. Fragmented QRS on the 12 lead ECG is a non invasive marker. Of intramyocardial conduction delay, often due to ventricular scarring, which has not been studied in AF before. The authors found that LA scarring was higher in patients with fragmented QRS than those without. This simple, available, and non-invasive marker may be helpful in predicting the presence and the severity of left atrial scarring prior to ablation procedures. Stricio Cleo et al. wrote the next article titled A Progressive Evaluation of Entrainment Mapping as an Adjunct to New Generation's High-Density Activation Mapping Systems of Left Atrial Tachycardias. He also sought to investigate the added value of entrainment maneuvers when using new high-density activation mapping technologies for the identification of complex left atrial tachycardias. The results show that entrainment maneuvers remain useful during mapping of complex left atrial tachycardia, mostly to differentiate active from passive macro reentrant loops and to demonstrate micro reentrant circuits. Next up is a paper titled Renal Denervation as Adjunctive Therapy for Cardiac-Sympathetic Denervation for Ablation Refractory Ventricular Tachycardia, written by Bradfield et al. This study included 10 patients who underwent renal denervation after cardiac-sympathetic denervation procedures, with a median follow-up of 23 months. The results show that renal denervation has potential benefit when VT recurs after radiofrequency ablation and cardiac sympathetic denervation. However, the need for acute renal denervation after cardiac sympathetic denervation is associated with a poor prognosis. The potential benefit of renal denervation as a rescue procedure will need to be determined by larger studies. The next article is the role of extensive diagnostic workup in young athletes and non-athletes with complex ventricular arrhythmias, written by Narduzzi et al. The authors used various imaging and monitoring techniques to study young athletes and non-athletes with ventricular arrhythmias. They found myocarditis ARVC and or focal fibrosis in over 20% of the athletes. This data showed the need for an extensive diagnostic workup in apparently healthy young patients with complex ventricular arrhythmias in order to characterize concealed cardiomyopathies. Next up is an article by Sakamoto et al., titled Surgical Procedure for Targeting Arrhythmogenic Substrates in the Treatment of Ventricular Tachycardia Associated with Cardiac Tumors. The authors evaluated the surgical procedures and late outcomes of uh, treatment of VT associated with cardiac tumors in sex patients. The tumors were cryoablated or partially resected. There was no recurrence of clinical VT after a mean follow-up time of 90 months. These findings show that surgical treatment of VT associated with cardiac tumors is very effective. For those with non receptible cardiac tumors, mapping-guided surgery was beneficial in eliminating VT. The next article: Right free wall accessory pathway with um, branched atrial insertions by Lee et al. An average of three separate atrial insertions were documented among these ten cases studied. All insertions were away from the tricuspid annulus by about 1 to 3 centimeters. These pathways need careful mapping and stepwise ablation. Single focal ablation is not likely to be successful in treating such pathways. Nakamura et al. wrote the next article titled, Impact of the Type of Electroanatomic Mapping System on the Instance of Cerebral Embolism after radiofrequency castor ablation of left atrial tachycardias. The authors prospectively enrolled 59 patients who underwent left atrial tachycardia ablation and brain MRI after the procedure. Either Rhythmia or Cato was used. The results show that the Rhythmia group exhibited a higher instance of post-ablation cerebral embolism the CARTO group. The authors conclude that the use of mini basket caster to guide RF ablation of left atrial macro reentrant tachycardias may mar- markedly increase the risk of silent cerebral embolism. The chief weakness of the study is that the mapping system used was not randomly assigned. A randomized trial will be needed to substantiate these observations. The next article is titled Chronic Venous Obstruction During Cardiac Device Revision by Morani et al. Out of 227 patients studied, 61 or 27% showed a venous stenosis greater than 75%. Chronic venous obstruction is a relatively frequent finding after CIED implantation. The number of implanted leads seems to be an independent predictor of venous obstruction. In cases of stenosis, the pre-procedural angiography-guided structural structured approach allowed the preservation of both contralateral axis and functioning leads. Jiang et al. wrote the next article titled, S-Wave in ECG lead v 6 Predicts Poor Response to Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy and the long-term outcome. There were 54 patients with complete left bundle branch block without an S-wave in these V1 or V6, 32 with S in V5, and 26 with an S in both V5 and V6. CRT response rate was 85%, 66%, and 39% respectively. These data indicate that in an S-wave, indeed V6, can predict low response to CRT and a poor long-term outcome. The mechanisms that underline these observations remain unknown. The next article is titled The Many Phases of Early Repolarization Syndrome by bosco Boynik et al. The authors studied 10 patients with early repolarization syndrome. They found that early repolarization syndrome is a heterogeneous condition and may be associated with both atrial and ventricular arrhythmias, AV block, dynamic electrocardiographic changes, and variable triggers. In addition to targeting PVC triggers, mapping and ablation of abnormal epicardial electrograms may be a potential treatment strategy. Next up is an article titled Difficulties with Invasive Risk Stratification Performed Under Anesthesia in Pediatric Wolf-Parkinson-White Syndrome by Schoeder et al. The gold standard of risk stratification in this population is the shortest pre-excited RR interval during atrial fibrillation, or SPERI. The authors found that EP lab measurements of pathway characteristics made under general anesthesia do not correlate well with clinically observed shortest uh, RR interval during atrial fibrillation. In addition, this study questions the predictive ability of invasive risk stratification under general anesthesia, given that 24% of the patients with a high risk of clinical shortest pre-excited RR interval during atrial fibrillation that is less than or equal to 250 milliseconds. Had uh, the shortest RR interval at EP study uh, may be considered a low risk that is greater than 250 milliseconds. A possible mechanism is the altered autonomic tone during general anesthesia. The next article is a wearable cardioverter defibrillator in pediatric cardiomyopathy, a cost-utility analysis, written by Evers et al. The authors evaluated the wearable cardioverter defibrillator, abbreviated as WCD, using a social willingness-to-pay threshold of $50,000 per quality-adjusted life year. The authors found that based on existing literature regarding rates of sudden cardiac arrest in pediatric patients with dilated cardiomyopathy undergoing medical optimization prior to ICD implantation, sending a patient home with WCD may be a cost-effective strategy. Conversely, keeping a patient in the hospital for that three-month period for the purpose of continuous telemetry was not cost-effective. Rossi et al. contributed the following article titled A Novel homozygous mutation in the TRDN gene causes a severe form of pediatric malignant ventricular arrhythmia. Triadine is a protein expressed in cardiac and skeletal muscle with an essential role in the structure and functional regulation of calcium release units and excitation contracting uh, coupling. Mutations in the triadine gene, or TRDN, have been described in various forms of human arrhythmia syndromes. The authors identified a novel missense variant, pL fifty six p, in the TRD gene in the homozygous proband, with one copy inherited from each of the heterozygous unaffected parents. In vitro analysis showed that the mutant protein can trigger arrhythmias by altering calcium homeostasis. These findings advance the understanding of the arrhythmogenic potential of calcium handling proteins. Up next is genetic arrhythmias complicating patients with dilated cardiomyopathy by Lee et al. The authors performed a study into the genetic causes of arrhythmias in dilated cardiomyopathy patients. They found some arrhythmias in DCM patients are caused by arrhythmia-related pathogenic variants. For DCM patients with explicit arrhythmias, arrhythmia causative genetic screening may help explain the etiology of the cardiac arrhythmias. Ackerman et al. wrote the following article titled Utilization of the Genome Aggregation Database. In silico tools and heterologous expression patch clamp studies to identify and demote previously published type 2 Long QT syndrome causative variants from pathogenic to likely benign. They studied 337 LQT2 associated missense variants. The authors offer compelling evidence for the demotion of 22 out of the 337, or 6.5%, KCNH2 variants previously described in the literature. The authors suggested that meticulous studies must be conducted for not only putatively pathogenic LQTS missense variants, but for the entire field of genetic heart disease to determine whether a variant is pathogenic or benign. The next article is comparative spatial resolution of 12-lead electrocardiography and an automated algorithm. The spatial resolution of pace mapping using 12-lead ECG alone versus quantitative morphology matching software is unknown. The authors found that both quantitative morphology matching software coefficients and the traditional pace mapping showed a significant inverse linear correlation with distance from the origin. However, the resolution of software is better than traditional pace mapping. These new methods may be helpful in determining the origin of tachycardias. Yin et al. wrote the following paper titled Effects of Ondansetron on Apamine Sensitive Small Conductance Calcium Activated Potassium Currents in Pacing Induced Fading Rabbit Hearts. The authors performed optical mapping in rabbit hearts with Pacing Induced Heart Failure and also in normal hearts both before and after ondansetron infusion. The results show that ondansetron at the therapeutic concentrations is the specific blocker of the small-conductance calcium-activated potassium current, or SK current. The SK current is abundantly expressed in the atria. It is also expressed in the ventricles in patients with heart failure. By blocking this potassium current, ondansetron could be either antiarrhythmic or proarrhythmic, depending on the clinical condition. The next article is a review by Rustin et al. on caring for pregnant women with inherited arrhythmia syndrome. To achieve optimal outcomes, early involvement of an expert pregnancy heart team, including obstetrics, genetics, cardiology, and anesthesiology, and a shared decision-making approach to inherited arrhythmia syndrome uh, in pregnancy are needed. I hope you enjoy this podcast. For Heart Rhythm, I'm Editor-in-Chief Dr. Peng Qian.